0: What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Well, welcome this weekend. Good to see you. Everybody happy you're here? Yes. All right. Rather be here than at the best uh, SEC football game in uh, America. Yeah, I think so. Hey, I'm glad uh, that those of you who are off-site are uh, with us also. I want to welcome those of you in the warehouse and in the chapel uh, and uh, at our campuses here in the southeast, also the Crossroads campuses. Uh, we're glad that you guys are still with us and uh, in the Midwest, in the West, and uh, those of you online, uh, we're glad that you're a part also. Uh, let me ask you something as we begin our study today. Uh, we're studying from the book of Nehemiah. And How many of you have ever, um, like, started to do something new, different, kind of an adventure? Maybe it was in your personal life. Maybe it was kind of a work deal that was out of the box a little bit. Or maybe in your spiritual life. And while people told you to expect that there would be some pushback, you were totally blown away by the volume of opposition that you got and by where it came from where it came from I remember um, many years ago um, I went to a conference and at the conference uh, I was really impacted you know you go to some conferences and you just do the conference whatever but this one I was really impacted God just really rocked my world was excited about it Um, couldn't wait to get home uh, to tell our team what was going on in fact was um, flying, and how many of you were uh, a little nervous about flying when you take off or land, all right, bunch of wimps? Yeah, uh, No, I mean, that's normal, that's normal. and uh, But I was looking around the flight, you know, and I saw the typical, you know, white knuckling the, the deal and all this kind of stuff, and, and I thought, you know what, you guys are, this, this one's on me. I have a mission from God. I'm getting home. This one's not going down. So this one's on me. You're all right. You know, I want to get up and announce that. I was so excited about what God was doing in my life. And I got home, and it was like, um, it, was almost, it felt like all hell broke loose in our church. And the pushback was from uh, people that I never ex- expected. I, I, I would think that those outside the church or maybe outside the vision or whatever, but this was from within. And I remember how rocked I was. I thought, how could that be? And the potential uh, for pushback from inside was much more devastating than if somebody outside that didn't know me, didn't know us, or whatever, would, would oppose. And some of you have experienced that. Well, that's exactly where Nehemiah is at this portion of, of the book that we're studying. If you're, if you're just new with us today, uh, we're in a series called Rebuild, and we're talking about rebuilding Uh, our personal lives, rebuilding our homes, rebuilding our churches, rebuilding our cities. And Nehemiah is well along in the process of of, uh, rebuilding. He answers the call of God to rebuild uh, the walls in Jerusalem. Uh, The city uh, gates and the walls are down. And uh, what he discovers is that there is no opportunity without opposition. How many of you would agree with that? I mean, it's much easier, a hundred times easier, to criticize than it is to create. If you announce plans, the critics will appear, and so Nehemiah gets all kinds of criticism in, in trying to rebuild the walls so that the people there can be uh, um, can defend themselves. Uh, in chapter two of Nehemiah, a couple of guys came along called Sanballat and Tobiah, and they weren't from inside of the city; they were from outside of the city. They had a vested interest in Nehemiah not doing well, and they began to laugh at him, you know. I mean, they made fun of him. And what was Nehemiah's response? He ignored him. And so when people ridicule you or put you down for what you're doing uh, for the Lord or a new adventure or whatever, probably best thing is not to engage. Probably the best thing is just to keep doing what you're doing and ignore That's what he did. And then uh, pretty soon he encounters discouragement. The walls. There. Not only does he have to build walls, but he's got to rebuild. That's why rebuilding is so much harder than building. Would you agree? If you've ever, you know, rebuilt a house or rebuilt a, a room or whatever, first you got to take all the old stuff out before you can even start with the new stuff. And it's fun doing the new stuff. Hauling out old stuff isn't any fun. How of you know that? And uh, so, so the the rubble is so bad from so many years of just neglect. But Nehemiah goes out and he looks at it, and, um, and, and it, could be, it could be discouraging. And so what's his response to discouragement? He just simply reorganizes. He says, okay, I didn't really have a clear plan on what I was going to do. I knew we were going to build a wall, and I got in here, and we're, going to have to, we're really going to have to tweak the plan. We're going to really have to reorganize. Well, here's what I would say to you. If you're a leader in any area of your life, and we all are leaders, We all are leaders. You say, well, I don't lead anything. Well, you lead yourself. You lead yourself. Some people lead themselves. Some lead others. Some lead departments. Some lead organizations. Some lead entire businesses. If you are a leader, you're going to encounter discouragement. I like to say that discouragement is the occupational hazard of leadership. It's going to happen. So here's the question. It's not such a big deal that it's going to happen. It will. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What's your plan? Are you going to let it derail you, or are you going to? Do do you have a plan? Do you say, okay, discouragement's going to come, but here's what I'm I'm going to do in light of discouragement? Nehemiah did. He he reorganized, and then there was danger. Um, Nehemiah uh, uh, encountered again, uh, Sanballat and Tobias, and they threatened uh, the Israelites. um, Tried to scare them into quitting. Nehemiah's response was just to plow through and to resist, and he had a plan, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. This week, we're going to look at how the enemy tried to use division and discord from within, tried to create internal conflict, because when you get people to fighting each other, that's when they're ineffective. And so that's what the enemy of uh, Nehemiah does. And uh, By the way, the core enemy is the same one that we all have, Satan. And he tries to bring discord and division. And in this case, he uses money. Has, uh, has Satan ever tried to use money to create discord and division in your, your house or your business or anything? I, I guess it still happens today, doesn't it? Did you know that more conflicts are caused in marriage by finances than anything else? than anything else, more conflicts, internal conflict. Now, with the church, does, does the devil still use division today? Yes, he does. Did you know that I think that the greatest threat to the church is not the atheists? You know, it, it's, it's not, you know, the, the government. It's not even the Democrats, okay? It's not the Republicans, all right? That's not the greatest threat to the church. Do you know what the greatest threat to Seacoast Christian community is? Us, notice I pointed at you when I said us, us, we're the greatest threat, internal discord and division. In fact, Mark 3 and verse 25 says this, it says, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. How many of you agree with that? Well, you better. That's what Jesus said. So, so. If you don't deal with conflict, then it's going to stop the work of God in your life, in your family, in your church, in your city, in your business. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at some principles of conflict management. Some of them are going to be a little unusual, but I think they're real. I think it's the, sometimes you read about conflict management, you know, here's how you do conflict management. And you go, let's get real. That's not the world that I live in. Well, Nehemiah lives in a real world. It's going to be very interesting, I think, as we look at how he deals with this internal conflict. But before we do, let's talk about why the conflict was there. What caused it? What was the cause of the conflict? What we're going to do is we're just going to go verse by verse through chapter 5. We'll start at, at verse 1, and he talks about one of the problems was a food shortage. Verse 1 of Nehemiah 5. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we in our... We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. So in the next verse, he talks about a famine. But He says, we're having a problem here. We can't eat. Isn't it interesting? Isn't this interesting? That in the middle of doing God's work, and this was a significant work, rebuilding the walls. In the middle of doing God's work, God allowed a famine. I mean, what's up with that? Come on, listen. You want us to build the wall? At least keep the food coming. Let's have a little rain. Let's, Let's make good circumstances here. In the middle of doing the will of God, they're in the midst of a famine. Weren't they doing what God told them to do? Maybe they must have been out of God's will. No. They were right in the center of God's will. See, I think that doing God's will... Uh, doesn't uh, exempt you or I, either one, from the common problems of life, you know. You can be in the middle of God's will, trying to follow him and serve him, be committed to him, and uh, and and something happens. Just, just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean your car isn't going to break down. You know, here I'm trying to serve God, and I'm giving him 10% of my resources as a tithe to him so that the church can... Can go, go throughout the world, you know, and I'm doing all the good stuff and my car broke down. What's up with that? You have an old cruddy car. That's all that's wrong. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with God. You know, this stuff happens. Even sometimes you get new cars that stuff happens to. You need to take it back, okay? So, anyway, there's a food shortage. And then there's a debt service problem. In verse 3, he says, Others were saying, We're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. They said, basically, we're we're taking out a, a home equity loan on our houses so that we can feed our kids. In fact, in verse two, it says our sons and daughters are numerous. There were a lot of families like the Walters family. They had five kids before they were 30 years old. You know, what's up with that? Or like the Surrattes, man, if you just hang around long enough, we'll, we'll multiply, we'll, we'll outnumber you, you know. They're saying we got all these kids and we can't, we can't, we can't even feed them and so we've got to mortgage our homes. And then high taxes in Nehemiah 5, 4, you just thought that was a new thing. It says, still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Verse 5, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. I mean, it's got a mess high taxes and a famine and just mortgages that are too high. What's the root cause? It's in verse one. It says, The men and their wives raise a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. This wasn't a problem from outside. This wasn't Sanballat and Tobiah. This was people inside. This were rich Jews who were taking advantage of their brothers. And this isn't about class warfare. This isn't about rich people are bad, poor people are good, you know. Give all of your money to the poor people and everything will be okay. That's not what it's about. In fact, if you read the Bible that way, you're missing a whole bunch. You're missing a key concept called Righteousness. Righteousness. In fact, righteousness in the Bible and unrighteousness is much more important than rich or poor. You've got not two classes of people in the Bible, rich and poor. You've got four classes of people in the Bible. Whenever you read it, you need to read it through this lens. You've got the righteous rich, and uh, that's that. There are all kinds of righteous rich people. Th- those are rich people. That and by rich, that's people that have more than they need with a surplus. And uh, righteous rich people, um, they have more, more money maybe than others, more than they need. And they, they got it. Maybe they inherited it or maybe they, you know, worked a, a business and worked really, really hard and, and did a good thing. And they do good things with their money. They give to God. They give to the poor. I had a guy in our church who I would call a righteous rich person who came to me just the other day. And he said, here's a check I want one of our pastors and their wives to be able to go on the Israel trip this year. To open up. I thought, that's incredible. And there have been three or four different people that have done things like that. I, not only do I want to go, but I, I want, you know, somebody in, in the church to be able to go. Righteous rich. Um, there are unrighteous rich, and that's who we've got here. These are rich people that, however they got their money, they're taking advantage of other people. You know, they're just giving it in any way that they can. They're giving them a hard time. Then you've got the, poor. You've got righteous poor. Um, That's people who, they don't have a lot of money. Some people will never have a lot of money. Um, My father-in-law, I wouldn't call him poor, but he never would be rich. He was a blue-collar guy. You know, he went to uh, work every day, wore steel-toed boots, you know, and and work clothes and a lunch pail. He was a, actually, he worked in the airlines. He was an instrument mechanic. He was a union guy. Blue-collar. Worked really, really hard all of his life. Took care of his family. Loved God, loved people, righteous but not rich. Okay, then you've got unrighteous poor. You know, those are the, those are the ones that, um, that they, they're lazy. They don't do anything with their money, or if they do, they spend it frivolously. You know, they're going to the strip clubs, um, going to the casinos. You know, is it wrong to go to a casino? Oh, you know, I don't want to get legalistic on it, but uh, I was at a casino. Well, actually, I wasn't. I was at In Las Vegas just the other day, thought I'd take some building fund money and we'd, you know, increase it and see what we could do. (laughs) Actually not. (laughs) I was at a a meeting uh, with pastors. I was speaking at a meeting with pastors in Las Vegas and they actually put us at a hotel right in the center of Las Vegas that uh, had no casinos and no smoking. What's up with that? I mean, why do you go to Vegas? You know I mean? But, uh, but I watched people go into casinos and I thought, you know, uh, I mean, again, I'm not going to get legalistic about it, but if you, th- if you think you're going to go and hit it big, you need to look at all the nice stuff in the casino and then look at your stuff and see who hits it big, <laughs> okay? Because that's kind of how, how that whole deal works. So you've, got, so you've got, what you've got in this situation is you've got unrighteous rich who are taking advantage of their brothers. What what they're doing is is, um, uh, they they had money, they had food. They said, if you'll sell me your house, I'll give you food, I'll lend you money, but it's going to be at a high interest rate. And if you can't pay the loan, I'll take your children as collateral. That's not such a bad deal sometimes probably, but but it was clearly against God's law. Exodus 2.25, he clearly told his people, you can't charge interest rates to your own people when you give money to each other. Now, he allowed Jews to charge interest rates to other people, but they were not allowed to charge it to each other. And so you've got these rich people who are taking advantage of the poor and you've got conflict and what's the root cause of it? It's greed and selfishness. Now, if you have conflict in your family, if you have conflict with your boyfriend, if you have conflict at work, or in the church or the office school, the bottom line of conflict is always selfishness. James 4 and verse 1 says, do you know where your fights and your arguments come from? They come from the selfish desires that war within you. When my wants conflict with your wants, guess what? We got a problem. I want what I want, you want what you want. That's why for Debbie and I, We made a great investment in our marriage a few years ago. We bought dual controls on our electric blanket. It's awesome. It's awesome. We used to fight over, you know, how, what the temperature should be in the house. Well, you know, I know it's a rich person problem. They probably don't have those in poorer countries, but it's helped us. I I remember we used to fight over the towels, how they should be folded in halves or thirds. I can remember early on, seriously, because my mother folded them a certain way. And my wife informed me that was not the right way, okay? it's not the right way. And so now we fold them the way her family folds them, and that's how we're passing it down to our generations. You know, should the toilet paper be over or under? Little issues become huge because of what? Because of competing desires. We're different. All right, so let's go, let's, let's talk about conflict resolution. That's kind of where it came from. Um, in this situation, what is the cure? How does a rebuilder resolve conflict? Nehemiah knows that this whole thing, this good thing that God has for him, could blow up in their face if he he if he, uh, he doesn 't deal with the conflict, could never get rebuilt. They were exploiting one another, fighting against Jews, family fighting against families, much worse than fighting the enemy out there in fact when there, when you 've got an enemy out there, oftentimes. That just rallies the troops. You know, it's us versus them. There's somebody out there. We've got to rally the troops around it. And a lot of times that's, that's a good thing. But when it's internal, it's, it's, never, it's never good. It divides you. So what, what do you do? Uh, conflict resolution. Here's one that you've not read in the books. Get angry. Get angry. Look at verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. So what does that mean? Nehemiah didn't ignore the problem. He didn't just hope it'll go away. He he took it seriously. Listen to me. If you're a leader, if you're a leader of anything, any kind of a group, and the harmony of your people is threatened, you better get angry. It's very, very important. Your credibility, your leadership cred depends on you being able to get angry at the right things. I mean, if, if, uh, if there's a child molestation, you need to get angry about that. If there's a rape, you need to get angry uh, 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 about that. You know, if there's, if there's a hard-working guy that is doing the best he can to make a living for him and his family and the company is ripping him off, you need to get angry about that. You need to get angry. See, You as a leader are to protect the harmony of your home, your group, your department, or whatever. And sometimes anger is very appropriate. In fact, God commands anger. Did you know that? God commands anger. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, he says, be angry. Say that together. Be angry. Some of you love that. This is good. Oh, Greg, I love this. Yeah, you need to get off anger porn that you're watching on TV and and, uh, get into the Bible a little bit more. Okay, here we go. Be angry. It says, and yet do not sin. Okay, so be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't sin. One of the first things you need to do if there is disharmony caused by selfishness, you as a leader better get angry. But you cannot let your anger lead you to sin. And some of us do that. Some of us get angry, and we default right into sin. You know, you get mad, so you fire off a nasty email. Anybody ever done that? Have you know that, that um, email does not translate emotion well, okay? Say good things through Twitter and email. Don't say bad things. I say very few things, and then I always put a smiley face on it, Okay. <laughs> That's because I think laugh out loud is ridiculous. And so I just do smiley faces, you know. So, get, you, But you can't get angry and fire off an email. Worse yet, rather than an email, some of you post a nasty blog post so the whole world can see it forever. Okay. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. I'm just trying to be real. You know what? Sometimes it's better not to be real in front of everybody. How do you know that? And so, And so some of us do that. We get angry and we just move, just strike out. We kind of throw up on the, uh, on the uh, internet. Um, or you leave a voicemail. That's not good. That's called sinning in anger. Now, Nehemiah's anger is not a personal reaction. Nobody's hurting him. He's not getting angry and striking back because somebody's bruised his ego, somebody's in his space that shouldn't be in his space. See, that's the wrong kind of anger. He's angry that the rich are exploiting the poor in his Jewish community. And it's going to threaten the work of God among them. And so Nehemiah's thinking, what good is a wall if the people inside the wall are ripping each other off? But the point is, we need to be angry at sin. A rebuilder without some fire in his or her bones is not much of a leader. When you see something that's destroying the harmony of your family, or your church, or your nation, or your business, the first thing you need to do as a leader is get upset. Nothing will upset a a good leader worse than division. Now, if you want to get called on the carpet at Seacoast, just cause division. That's about the only thing I get upset at. You know, really. I mean, everybody has opinions about everything, don't care. But if you're causing division, then, then we're going to get upset because it threatens the unity. I'm jealous for the harmony and the unity in this church. And as a leader, we need, we, need to, we need to learn to be angry at the right time without sin. Number two in conflict resolution is think before you speak. Think before you speak. See, if you only do step one and don't do step two, you're going to get in a boatload of trouble. How many of you know that? And so here's what Nehemiah does, verse 7. After thinking about the situation, he got angry, but he didn't say anything to anybody. After thinking about the situation, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. So his first reaction was get angry, but before he did anything, he talked to himself about it. He got alone with God. How long? I don't know. It may have been a few minutes, a few hours, a few days. But he got alone, and he processed it, thought about it to get a perspective right. How do you know that sometimes you'll hear something, if you're a parent, you hear this, one of the kids will come to you with a report and it gets your blood boiling. Anybody ever been there? And if you act on what you just heard, you will be an unjust judge because there's two sides to that story. So you need to process it. You need to think about it. And that's what Nehemiah did. He processed it. And he thought about it, probably did some investigation on it to see if it was true. He planned it out. He said, God, what do you want me to say about it? Listen, when you get angry, your first reaction is usually wrong. When you get angry, your first reaction is usually wrong. So think it through before you speak. James 1 and verse 19 says everyone should be, what, quick to listen. How many ears do you have? How many mouths do you have? That's not a mistake quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Okay? See, is this a contradiction to Ephesians 4.26 that says, be angry? When it says, be slow to be angry? No. It's, It's an explanation. It's a clarification. There's a difference between man's anger and God's anger. Man's anger is when we act in revenge. God's anger is when we act in righteousness, okay? There's no personal vendetta. I'm not going to get angry because you hurt me, you irritated me, you frustrated me, you disappointed me. That's the wrong kind of anger. You're angry out of your own selfishness because everybody's going to hurt you. Everybody's going to disappoint you at some time. You know, it's not about about you. Um, Somebody didn't live up to your expectations. No. If you are quick to listen and you are slow to speak, you do the first two. Then the third one, slow to become angry, is automatic. Impulsive anger always gets you in trouble. Is there any testimonies in here on that? Impulsive anger gets you in trouble. I've seen a lot of leaders who were effective for the Lord, but in a moment of impulse, they blew it all. And they lost their credibility among those that they were leading because they were impulsive in anger in uh, in that. So resolve conflict, get angry. But the second thing you do is you chill before you spill. (laughs) I like that. I thought about that a long time. Isn't that good? You chill before you spill, all right? You think about it. All right, number three, privately confront. Privately confront. Go directly to the source. Now, you don't deal with somebody else about it. You don't talk to five or six of your closest friends about what you're feeling. I got a good amen there. In order to get everybody on your side, you're the victim, you're the martyr. And oh, you wouldn't believe how terrible it was. You don't do that. You don't say, You know, I've got a prayer request. No, come on. That's just sanctified gossip, is all that is, okay? You know, put your big boy panties on. Let's, let's man up a little bit. Let's man up. You go to the person directly and, 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 uh, and, and you, you deal with it. If somebody has offended you, listen to me, and you go to somebody else besides them first, you've already sinned. Did you get that? If somebody offended you and you go to somebody else before you go to them, you've already sinned. All right? You're already off on the wrong foot. Nehemiah said, I told them, you're oppressing your own relatives by charging them interest when they borrow money. Let's see how Jesus said it, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take two, one or two others along. This is church Discipline. So that every matter may be established in the testimony of two or three witnesses. And it's a good idea not just to take, you know, two of your closest friends that you've already indoctrinated. Let's try to take some impartial people along. to Because we're not trying to win our We're trying to win a relationship. And so you bring a couple of people, he says. And, uh, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, you treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. How do you treat a pagan or a tax collector? Do you shun them? No. You love them. But you just don't approve of their action. How do you know there's a difference between acceptance and approval? I accept everybody. I don't approve of everything that's done. Okay. So only involve the people to the limit that you have to involve others. First go see the person, try to resolve it with your boss, try to resolve it with your husband or wife or whatever it is. Go to them first. If that doesn't work, then you may need to take somebody else. If that doesn't work, then you involve a larger group and bring the, the church in. But he doesn't say, first go tell the church and then the person. But that's easier, isn't it? If you go to somebody else first, you've already sinned. Nehemiah 5.70 says, I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused. Circle the word accused. He's serious about this. How many of you really like to confront people? I know some of you do. I don't. How many of you like to be confronted? Most of us don't. I want to be liked. <laughs> but I found out that the longer I wait, the worse it gets. Have you discovered that? You know, it doesn't, doesn't get better. It, and usually the more courage it takes later on. So so confront, confront, confront. All right. Um, successful rebuilders must have the courage to confront. Leadership requires courage. Leadership is not a popularity confl- uh, contest. You can't please everybody, God doesn't please everybody. Just this weekend, there'll be people praying for this team and that team and, you know, some people pray for rain. Some people pray, no, we're having a wedding today. Let's have a nice, you know, clear day, whatever. God can't please everybody and you're not going to uh, either. Um, and Pastors actually are commanded to warn troublemakers. In Titus 3, verse 10, it says, if anybody is causing divisions among you, he should be given a first and second warning and after that have nothing more to do with them. For such a person has a wrong sense of values, he or she is sinning and they know it. I've only had to do that a few times, but you need, you need to be prepared to confront. Okay, the fourth thing that you do in conflict resolution is publicly rebuke. Publicly rebuke. Look at what Nehemiah does, 5-7. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. Evidently his private confrontation didn't work. So he has to have a public meeting, verse 8. And said, as far as possible, we've brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. We bought them back. Now, you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They, uh, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Here's what he says. He says, you know what it used to be? We had to buy our brothers back from the Gentiles. They were slaves, so we had to buy them back. And now, <laughs> you're selling each other. It doesn't make sense. This is sin. He says it in such a good way that they're silent. Now I imagine Nehemiah is just a little bit nervous right now cuz he's confronting the very people who could finance the vision. These are the nobles, these are the rich people. They've got the money to finance the rebuilding of the wall. But he does it anyway. He does it anyway. He's committed to doing the right thing. Verse 9. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? He, appe- he appeals their conscience. He says, you know, shouldn't you do the right thing for the sake of those outside? They're gonna think we're crazy. They're laughing at us. What a poor testimony. See, discord is always a poor testimony. When a church gets a reputation for being a fighting church, it loses its effectiveness. When a small group, It's fighting with one another. It's a joke outside the the church. People at Harris Teeter, you know, see and know that you claim to be a Christian, but you can't even love the people that you're involved in. It's a joke. It's a joke. See, so we got to deal with this stuff. Deal with this stuff. Verse 10 is a crucial verse in Nehemiah. Uh, He says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people, money, and grain. But let the exacting usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and all the usury that you're charging them the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. What does that mean? That means they were charging them 12% interest. But here's the question. Was Nehemiah guilty of the same thing? Yeah, it says so. Nehemiah was one of the rich guys. And he had a side business, and part of his side business was lending money at interest to his, his own people. And, uh, and he publicly repents. And there's an important leadership principle there. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a business leader, you're a leader in the church, a teacher, people don't expect you to be perfect. Nobody is. The people you lead, no, they're not perfect. They don't expect you to be perfect but they do expect you to be honest. People will forgive confessed sin. They won't forgive deception. See, people will will trust you, even when you screw up, if you're humble and you repent. If they know that you're doing the same stuff you're accusing them of and don't acknowledge it, then you're toast, okay? People ask me sometimes, I'll go to a conference and they'll say, how do you, You know, how do you keep up the image of a leader in the the church that you lead? And I say, well, I don't. I mean, I I think I'm a leader, but it takes too much energy to keep up an image. My people know I need a lot of grace. In fact, some of them are just real happy I'm not screwing up all the time. You know, it's just like, how's Greg? Well, he's okay. You you know. (laughs) And we're not excusing sin by any means because that's not it at all. But you just got to be real. You got to be honest. We confess. We repent. That's why we have crosses. I go to the cross and confess my my sin, okay? Um, Verse 12, we'll give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath. He said, let's write that down. Let's write it down real quick, Okay. And, uh, but they repented. It's a major relief. And he said, I also shook off the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out his house and possessions of every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken and emptied. At, the whole of the, at this, the whole assembly said, yay, God, amen. They praised God and the people did as they promised. Man, at amen, the church, church broke out that day. All the blue-collar guys are high five and say, I get my air compressor back. <laughs> you know, I get my, my table saw back that they cheated me out of. Some of the women are going, we get our kids back. Some of the other women are going, really? <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of nice with just the two of us in the house, don't have to clean so much, you know, or whatever. But it, it was a great day. Nehemiah gets angry, he thinks about it, chills before he spills. He confronts in public, he publicly rebukes, gets the results that he wants. One more thing. He sets an example of generosity. An example of generosity. Verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brother ate the food allotted to the governor. What's he saying? He, he had, uh, because he was a governor for 12 years, he had a certain allotment that was bigger than everybody else. And he said, I'm not taking it. I, I'm going to walk in unselfishness, in generosity before the people. Why does, it, why does he say that right at the end of all this stuff about conflict? Because the source of all conflict is selfishness. Okay? You can go through all these steps, if you don't deal with selfishness, you'll never deal with conflict even within yourself. Nehemiah never asked anybody to do what himself wasn't willing to do or wasn't already doing. He could say with a clear conscience, follow my example. Now, can I tell you, that's the mark of a successful leader. Follow my example. In fact, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Listen to me. Everybody look at me a minute. Can you say that? Can you? Can you say that to your kids? Can you say that to the team, that the sports team that you're a part of? Can you say that to the team at work? Can you say that to your employees? Follow me. And follow my example of generosity. My example of generosity toward God. Just fo- You want to know what to do? Kind of look at what I do, okay? My, my generosity toward my family you want, you want to know what that looks like? I don't want to be prideful on this thing but here's a kind of a I think I'm doing all right there so follow me. My generosity toward other people follow me. follow me. So we come down toward kind of a response time in a minute let, let me just make some personal application out of this whole story let's kind of we looked at a story in the eyes of conflict but let me ask you, Two or three questions. First of all, who are you taking advantage of? Who are you taking advantage of? Anybody? Physically? Maybe sexually? Maybe it's emotionally? Or maybe, like in this case, you're taking advantage of some people financially and you know it? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to admit it? Are you going to do something about it? Are you going to make restitution? Okay, let me ask you another question. Who's taking advantage of you? There are some of us in here that are being taken advantage of physically, sexually, maybe emotionally, maybe financially. Let me ask you, what are you going to do about it? You going to get mad and, and just like go talk to all your friends? Or are you going to deal with it in a God-honoring way? Are you, are, are you going to, you know, write a blog post? Or are you going to get to the root of it and deal with it? Uh, let, let, let me ask you something else. How generous are you? How generous are you? Do you love God or do you love money? It's one or the other. Do you love Jesus or do you love money? It's not both. Jesus said you can't love both. You can't love both. Do you love one or do you love the other? What does your giving to God say about that, about your generosity? What what about your giving to this church and the expression of of generosity uh, through here? What does it say about your generosity? What does your restaurant behavior say about your generosity? You go to a restaurant, are you one of the guys that when the bill comes, you know, and they, they didn't divide it up, you're dividing it up. You got the calculator out to get it exactly, okay, that pickle was on your deal. They're 25 cents a piece, so you owe an extra 25 cents, okay? Why don't you buy their pickle? In fact, why don't you buy their lunch every once in a while? It'll kind of get lubricate generosity a little bit. How about the tip? You always give at least 20%? Do you? Or do you, well, the service wasn't that good. You know what they're getting paid? They're not getting paid minimum wage. They're living on your tips. The servant, service wasn't that good. Just give them money, okay? Be generous. Be generous. How important is unity to you? Huh? Ephesians 4.3 three. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Circle every effort. That means make it the number one priority to promote unity and harmony in our church, in your business, wherever it is. The Bible says that the unity is to be maintained at all costs. Now, there's no such thing as a perfect church. In fact, ours was a lot more perfect before you came, okay? <laughs> but it's not even close to perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect family, okay? There's no such thing as a perfect business. There's none of that. There's gonna be conflict, but God wants us to minimize that for his glory. The testimony of the church should not be beautiful buildings, great sermons, awesome music, but it should be how they love one another. See, the the sign of maturity is not how much you know. It's who do you love? Who do you love? See, individually I can't do a lot and individually Nehemiah couldn't do a lot and you can't do a lot but together together we can make an impact if we'll walk in unity there's nothing that can stop us from accomplishing God's will let's pray father I thank you today for your goodness to us thank you for the lesson from Nehemiah on conflict and uh, on generosity and God, I just pray that you would give us the courage in these moments, in these next few moments, just to respond to you, uh, to um, listen for your voice, and to do as you would ask us to do. God, I ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Amen.